Hello, and welcome back to the Morbid Museum. We are your hosts, Katie Mead and Luke Boyd. Hello, everybody. Happy Halloween. We made it. Woo! It's Halloween when this episode is coming out. Has so it been exciting. Spooky? I think it's been pretty spooky. We've had a lot of fun this month. We really have. So I am the lucky one who gets to conclude our Spooktober. And I am doing it by honoring one of my, I mean, arguably top three, if not top two, if not even maybe number one most adored historical figures of all time, Mr. Harry Houdini. Big time history crush. Oh, obsessed. I'm obsessed. I am going to try so hard to keep this episode within our usual 60 to 90 minute time frame, but it's going to be really difficult because of how much I love this man. So in order to achieve that, I am not going to go too deep on his personal life and his early career, both of which are fascinating, by the way. Can't really do any of that in its totality for brevity's sake. But instead, I'm going to focus really on the most morbid aspects of his career, which is what's most relevant for our podcast, of course. Because of that, there's a very good chance I'm going to be doing some spin-off Houdini episodes in the future. That'll likely be tied into Patreon content, which, yes, folks, Patreon is coming. We are working on it. We are planning. It's a coming, so get ready. But I will begin by saying the reason why I love learning about Harry Houdini so damn much is because he is the quintessential turn-of-the-century American story. He was an immigrant who, by the way, hid that fact mm. his whole life. He was a Wisconsin boy mm -hmm. when asked, but he was, in fact, an immigrant from Hungary. He was a Jew. He was the son of a rabbi, and they immigrated to America. He was an entertainer at really what we consider, and that's me speaking as a theater historian, the real dawn of American entertainment as we know it today. It, it was what was truly ours. Mm. And he is at the beginning of that shift, riding the Orpheum circuit and playing vaudeville to these sold-out audiences night after night. He invented himself. He invented endless illusions, contraptions. And yes, Absolutely, he was a total fucking snack. <laughs> You're really I, handsome. I mean, Luke, when was the last time you pulled up? Shirtless Harry? Shirtless Harry. Forget it. Everythingless Harry. <laughs> there are so many nude photos of Harry Houdini. <laughs> He's very, very tight. So tiny. and he's got a great build. Got a great. He's not like, a tall man. Got he's a great about, like Charles Atlas build, though. You know. Yeah, he's he was about five 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 six. So not a super tall guy, but um, he had this incredible physical strength. Mm -hmm. Very muscular. He had a lot of dexterity, and he cared a lot about his physical fitness. And he needed to in right. order to do what he did for a living to survive his feats of strength and. Death-defying acts. Absolutely. And that, of course, helped him. Both his both his handsomeness and his charm and his physique helped him greatly. But really, 
he was so successful because he was a phenomenal showman mm. and self-promoter. He knew how to sell an act. Mm. He was the king of that, coming up with nicknames and gimmicks and posters and all this stuff. He was his own agent, and he the, was brilliant at it. The American art of self-promotion. Oh, my God. Phenomenal. And he also knew how to reinvent himself because eventually your tricks get stale. How many times can you watch a guy get out of a pair of handcuffs? I got to do more. I have to keep trying more. I have to keep making this more interesting, which for him meant more dangerous. Mm -hmm. And he was fearless. He really was. He it's he's an incredible human being. He had a huge ego, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but he was the unrivaled escape artist of his time whose death-defying morbid feats terrified, titillated and enthralled audiences all over the world. His name is now synonymous with escape. Mm -hmm. That's how famous this person is. That's how important this person is in terms of the history of show business. So, I mean, you can see why it's going to be hard for me to <laughs> keep this narrow. <laughs> it's a great intro. Sounds great. Thank you. Thank you. So what are you going to be focusing on in terms of the Harry Houdini story? So I am going to start a little bit at the top because the other thing that makes telling the Harry story in a succinct way that's hard is we have so much on him, we are so lucky that Houdini was famous during a time of photography, mm -hmm. silent film. There is tons of silent film of Harry. And there actually is also recorded sound of Harry Houdini. We know what he sounded like. So, I mean, it's just incredible how much content there is on him. A lot of evidence, so, yeah. Oh, yeah. So by the end of this episode, of our our morbid museum will be stuffed to the gills. <laughs> He's going to have his own wing. I was going to say, it's the hairy wing. The Houdini <laughs> yeah, wing. Yeah, 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 yeah. We have so much museum-related content to tell you. Uh, so much for his legacy. So I'm going to start by talking a little bit about his early life, early career, and then we're going to get into the real death-defying feats. And then we're going to go back to our story from last week where he gets involved in spiritualism. Okay. So as I mentioned, he was actually born in Budapest, Hungary in March 24th, 1874. And his name was Eric Weiss, not Harry Houdini. He was not born Harry. Interesting. Houdini. Yes. He immigrated to the U.S. in 1878. So he was a little, little guy when he got here. They were in Appleton, Wisconsin. Family struggled horribly financially, as many, you know, <laughs> European Jewish immigrants did at the time. They bounced around the Midwest, were in Milwaukee. Finally, they came to New York City, hoping for more opportunity. His father was just never very successful as a rabbi, which as a non-Jew, I don't understand that. <laughs> I don't know that you could be an unsuccessful rabbi. He just wasn't good. <laughs> Just couldn't find a good congregation. I don't know. Mm, that's kind of yeah. sad. I know. So, and and they, his lineage is rabbis also. Right. So oh, Harry wow. Harry showed little to no interest in that. <laughs> I, I don't think he really. The, I've never read much on him expressing himself as as a Jewish person. It being of like massive importance to him. He talks about it and identified as such, but it, he he definitely didn't show an interest in being a rabbi. What he did show an interest in from the very beginning was athletics. 
loved athletics, loved competition, was very interested in magic tricks and stuff like that very early on, sleight mm. of hand. And uh, like most of us middle children, he loved to show off. <laughs> <laughs> I like to show off. So this didn't come from his family at all. He just picked it up on its own. On his no, own. no, 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 no. He's not a showbiz family guy. Right. That's what he broke ground in that way, too, in that he started this in his family. He had this tenacious desire to be successful. And I think that that was partly because of his father's failure and therefore the horrible poverty that they lived in and suffered through. And when his father died, there was a lot of pressure on him and his other siblings to continue. And he always felt that his mother was his primary responsibility. If you've ever learned anything about Houdini, he's got a massive love for his mama. Like he is the poster boy for mama's boy. Mm -hmm. Loved her, talks about her constantly. There's this very cute picture of him, his mother, and his wife, Bess, and he signs it, My Two Sweethearts. Mm. So he just adored her. So he had this drive to take care of her as well as find this success. That competitive ego side of him drove him as well. And so he he had dropped out of school at eight. So he, mm. he really never had much of an education. But he did start to pick up odd jobs. And the first little bit of show business he ever found himself in was at the age of nine, where he his, I think like a friend set up some sort of a shifty, <laughs> weird circus, like a five cent show, where he was a trapeze artist and called himself Eric the Prince of the Air. He's nine and this insane person is already on the trapeze. A little flying Walenda kid. Are you like, but not, but not coming from the family Correct. that does that. Did his family support these endeavors? His mother was so proud of, of mm. him. She was, oh my gosh, gushed over him. Mm -hmm. And there is in one of his diaries, he talks about, she watched one of his famous bridge jumps and he made a point to say, mama saw me today. Like it was such a point of pride for him. Um, I know. Isn't that sweet? Just a big uh, mama's boy. I, I heard that in a documentary, Penn and Teller were talking about it. And Teller, who, as you know, never Doesn't normally talked, mm. he told that story and cried because he was like, it's what so many of us are all about as show people is like, we are trying to make our mamas proud. proud. Yeah. <laughs> you so know? Sweet. yeah. And so this was his talent and he went after it, but he clearly showed a taste for danger very early on. What's interesting is his name is Eric, but the nickname was Eri, mm -hmm. which is Harry. Mm. So when he decides to change his name to Harry Houdini, that's around 1891. He's taking that from the man who's considered the father of modern magic, Robert Houdin. Oh. Yeah. And so if you add an I in French, it means to be like. So his name essentially was Houdin like so Houdini that's brilliant so Harry Houdini was how he made his name so and, and yeah and uh, Robert Houdin is really the one who's responsible for transforming magic into this marketable skill one that audiences would pay to see so just like with spiritualism we also see magicians become professional entertainers really in the 19th and early 20th century for the first time mm -hmm. whereas we in our previous episodes we've been talking about magic being fun little party tricks or straight up evil mm -hmm. so this is like no no not only are we gonna do this we're gonna monetize it 
So this is why spiritualism and magicians are very intertwined and why they don't get along. Mm -hmm. More on that to come shortly. So his career starts and like most entertainers of his day, he's starting just in the shittiest of shithole venues. <laughs> Luke, your our favorite places. He's Pete. working in Dime Museum. Pete Barnum? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if he ever specifically worked in a bar in a Barnum museum, but yeah, and I realize we mentioned them, but I don't know if we've ever really described what that means, but basically it's a building full of a variety of oddities and entertainments. And you walk through the whole thing. It's got different floors. We're definitely going to cover Barnum's museum at some point. So I, I won't tell you too much about that. But basically, he's doing his shtick anywhere from like nine to 14 times a day. Mm -hmm. So it's endless, endless. And he's doing card tricks and light illusions, sleight of hand, basic shit. And <laughs> I read somewhere where a dime museum would be considered one step above working in a beer hall. So this is nothing prestigious. The money is shit. You're just doing it basically to get better at what you do, I think, in Harry's case. And he was working with his brother at the time, whose nickname was Dash. His name is Theodore Vice, and he eventually would be called Hardeen. And they weren't competitors. Houdini was actually wanted him to take on a lot of his tricks because he was tired of people copying his shit. So he was like, I'm just going to show you exactly what to do. And you're going to be the me like in Europe. You're the franchisee. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But the Brothers Houdini comes to its conclusion when Harry meets his lovely wife, Bess. They are married like right away. Mm. He's 20. She's 18. They're babies, but they are in love. She is perfectly four foot 11. So she makes Harry look humongous. It's adorable. <laughs> She's like 90 pounds too, apparently. So like they're very well matched physically. Yeah. It's like good, like magician, like assistant, like dimensions. Yes. Yeah. Also, if you know anything about illusions and magic tricks and things like that, being petite is very helpful. Very easy to saw in half if you're petite. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, she would be his wife, his assistant, his confidant, his secret keeper. And as he referred to at some point, his best friend for Aww. the rest of his life. Yeah. Present of the fan club too. Yeah. You know, very sweet. He has a little bit of a reputation as perhaps a womanizer, yeah. but there's not Give a lot of proof. Me. Hit me with it. Come on. Yeah, but there's Come not on. a lot of proof of, of real affairs. There's women who allege things. There are letters that even Bess had come across. Yeah. after he died but like there isn't he wasn't like a lothario he just made them all disappear he was just a workaholic it feels like i think it was mom <laughs> work mm -hmm. best and like everything else <laughs> i think that's how he actually rolled but all of this time in dime museums and circuses which by the way he did end up in coney island because mm -hmm. he is in new york but they were they were traveling everywhere all over the united states wherever they could get work you know but he was working in circuses. And so this is when he and Bess started to work on more interesting tricks like levitation, phony hypnotism, and lots of sideshow stuff. Like this is where he learned he could swallow needles. Hate he that. One, it's terribly disgusting. Hate it so much. And he could withstand needle punctures to his body. He would play uh, the geek 
if you've never heard of that term, it's also sometimes known as the wild man, where basically it's someone who it, they may come off as if they're a cannibal or just someone who's extremely deranged in a in a sideshow act. Right. So they, as they're going through this sort of circus experience, they're starting to get hip to what's making money and things like seances and spiritualism and psychic stuff is becoming really, really hot. Mm. And so they use names like the great mystifier and they would work in union halls, levitating tables. They would do this thing where they answered sealed letters through psychic powers. The movie Nightmare Alley which was an awful movie starring Bradley Cooper. They go through all of this stuff and you can see it. Right. Not a great movie, not worth <laughs> watching, but uh, yeah, very similar stuff. Uh, but at the same time, they were still thinking about making their act different. So this is actually around the time that he invents his first real trick, his first invention, which is the metamorphosis. Mm. Do you know the metamorphosis trick? Can't say I do. So basically, it's a box and the magician goes into a bag and then into the box. The box is locked very securely, very tightly. Curtain goes up around him and the assistant. You hear like a clap, clap, clap. And then when the curtain comes up, Houdini would be out and then he would unlock all the locks on the box. She would be in the bag. The bag would still be tightly wrapped up mm -hmm. and he would unwrap her and there she would be. The bait and switch. <laughs> mm -hmm. That was his trick. Mm. That he invented that. Yeah. Because he's inventing like the physical machinery, yes. the staging. Like a lot of these things are like derivatives and tropes of other things, but he had a specific method and an industrialized packaging for everything. Yes. And there are certain things that can- Like a look. Yeah. And 100% can be contributed to him, things mm -hmm. that he invented. And we'll talk about some of that stuff. And metamorphosis is considered a Houdini trick mm -hmm. specifically. So they do do this kind of psychic stuff. <laughs> and according to his diary, apparently he felt endless guilt about it. It felt a lot of shame for participating in this deceit. Hmm. And that definitely plays a role in his, you know, ghost busting days right. to, to come. Uh, and he spent the rest of his career never again pretending that he was doing something through unseen forces. He always made it clear, I'm an illusionist. I'm not actually doing magic. He right. never pretended to be doing magic. He always was very clear on that because he didn't like the notion of deceitfulness in that way. Right. So... One of the things Harry wrote was, no matter what I pulled, someone in the audience was pretty sure to claim it as a direct message regarding those sealed letters. So mm. he and Bess had code language and everything where it'd be letter B, letter B, silly, stupid things like that. So he's saying someone would be sure to claim it as a direct message. When I noted the deep earnestness with which my utterances were being received, and that I was being considered a medium of far more than ordinary psychic powers, I felt that the game had gone far enough. This is he a pretty a noble take on all of this, considering that many people were more than happy to be charlatans and to assume otherworldly powers in this. And considering how clever a man he was, he could have been great at it. Sure, sure. Could have made like, a, lot of, a lot of money out of it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
because his ingenuity, holy shit, but he had a conscience. He had these scruples. Well, that's very admirable. Yeah. Ugh, love him. Just love him. <laughs> so uh, their acts still kind of sucked, though. <laughs> they rarely weren't doing well. And it really isn't until they're performing in a beer hall in St. Paul, Minnesota, that the infamous Martin Beck, impresario of vaudeville, he challenged him to a handcuff escape, which was becoming <laughs> Harry's big things, being known for being able to get out of handcuffs. And he was wowed, not just by his ability to do it, but the way he presented it. Mm, and so, exactly. And so that was the beginning of his life changing and his label changing to officially being an escape artist, an escapeologist. That would be the bread and butter for his career. And he was wildly successful. I saw numbers that by the turn of the century, so right as he, his career's just kicking off, because we're talking about like 1899 when mm -hmm. he meets Martin Beck, I think. So by the turn of the century, he is earning $300 a week, which is almost, what, 10K in today's money? <laughs> and he's like 26. He's a baby. Amazing. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. By the 1920s, he would sometimes be making upwards of like 2K a week, which is like a which is like $30,000 for an engagement. And no income tax. Hello. I mean, there was some taxes, <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know how much. And I don't know what you could get away with. But this yeah. gives you a you sense a of lot. it. Yeah. yeah, this gives you a sense of how wildly rich and famous he was and the fact that he was worth so much that he played the most incredible places in the world. Not just New York. Mm -hmm. He played the Hippodrome. He, he was everywhere. So this is where I'm going to kind of skip through a little bit. Because as much as I would love to tell you the story of, as he called himself, the handcuff king, it is a lot of information. And he had his handcuff king stuff, his rope tricks. He broke out mm. of jail cells. Mm. He would proudly say and do these amazing promotional things where he would get to a town, go to the local prison and be like, <laughs> let me see your jailer. I promise you, sir, that I can break out of this prison cell and these handcuffs. Sensational. Nothing, no prison in the world can hold me. And it was true. Amazing. He always got out. He always got out. And I would love to go into all of that. He did write a self-published book called Handcuff Secrets. He wrote that in 1910, just to kind of like demystify it and just be like, yeah, you know, these are tricks. I'm yeah. done. <laughs> just gotta dislocate your wrist. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, it, and he didn't. He really didn't have to do that much. It's, it's a lot of fun trickery. But again, mm -hmm. I, I'm going to talk about all of that in a different episode because I think it'll be really, really fun. He starts to get back into like a little bit more of his morbidity once he starts doing the straight jacket tricks. Those to me, like watching him undo a straitjacket, which I'm sure many of you have watched a video of him doing it. There's video of that everywhere or at minimum seeing him all strapped up. And he also made it look very dramatic. Yeah. But he has perfectly simple explanations for that as well on how he was able to escape them. This one I will tell you just because it's interesting. The first step necessary to free yourself is to place the elbow, which has the continuous hand under the opposite elbow on some sort of solid foundation. So maybe a nearby wall or something. And by sheer strength, 
exerts sufficient force at this elbow so as to force it gradually up towards the head, and by further persistent straining, you can eventually force the head under the lower arm, which results in bringing both of the encased arms in front of the body. So now your arms are in front of you through that ridiculous feat. Once having That's freed so scary. Your, yeah, once having freed your arms to such an extent as to get them in front of your body, you can now undo the buckles and the straps of the cuffs with your teeth, after which you have opened the buckles in the back with your hands, which are still encased in the canvas sleeves, and then you remove the straitjacket from your body. If you don't freak the hell out by the time <laughs> by the time you get to step 13. If I haven't like, if I haven't pulled every muscle in my neck by now. Oh my god, I'm just feeling like the wing just ooh, that's And yeah, this was, is yeah, why sorry. not anybody can do this anyway. So even no. if you know how he does it, it doesn't really matter. I can't do that. No, you would have to, you know, start from like age 7 and just do it nonstop. You have to have a certain level of incredible physical strength mm -hmm. and dexterity, flexibility, and as cool and kind of weird and freaky and morbid as that was because of course we associate straight jackets with the mentally ill mm -hmm. he still wanted to kick it up a notch so now <laughs> we get into his real morbid ideas because a lot of this stuff would be done behind curtains and in privacy and away from prying eyes the thing with the straight jacket was he did this in public yeah right in front of you very publicly and hanging upside down mm. Which you've just added a whole new layer of complexity because now you're also dealing with gravity and your body is dealing with blood flowing in a different direction. Like the control yeah. this man had over his body is just phenomenal. And I need to get like a like a really nice big blown up photo of the one of him hanging upside down in Times Square in 1907. Mm. It took him two minutes to do it mm. hanging so high in the air mm. <laughs> and it was brilliant because he knew an escape artist would make audiences go oh that was incredible i can't believe you did that hanging upside down and doing that shit would have people peeing in their pants sure and paying to see it again and again and again because there's something about these dangerous death-defying acts oh, it's thrilling yeah, because you're being confronted with the possibility of watching someone die. Right, like evil can evil. And people are weird and want to possibly we see love that. It. We love it. We love it. Yeah. So he continues to up the ante. And something that he had been working on for a while and trying to perfect was his ability to hold his breath. And he practiced this in the bathtub and had gotten pretty good at it. His actual like standard record, all trickery and stuff aside, uh, was between three and four minutes. That is so long. That is so long. So long. You know, and I think the idea behind the wanting to hold his breath underwater and do these underwater tricks. I think drowning is such a deeply ingrained fear in so many people. And I did read that apparently around five, he himself almost drowned in a lake. So maybe that contributed to the fascination or he found some sort of, I don't know, like therapy through this by saying, I can control the outcome. Mm. I survived this and I will survive it again and again and again. Like a frozen Wisconsin lake trauma? Who knows? I mean, Ooh. yeah. Yeah. So I Now I control the outcome. So, you know, who knows? Mm -hmm. But he trained and trained and trained. 
And he would, when he did some of his tricks, specifically uh, the milk can trick, which I'm going to get into in a second, part of the act, he would tell his audience, I need a moment to warm up my lungs. So if everyone wouldn't mind joining me, I'm going to hold my breath for one minute. And he'd like say, all right, three, two, one, hold your breath. And like around 10 seconds, 30 seconds, you'd hear <laughs> mm -hmm. all across the audience. And he's still going and no one else is still holding their breath. And, and now they're only... cheering and they're screaming and they're just And building. that's just one minute and he hasn't even done anything yet. Right. Right? So he's building them up. Great for crowd work. Oh, my God. So smart. So he, again, before I get into the milk can trick, which is amazing, this wasn't, these weren't his only like super bizarro dark tricks that involved his breathing techniques. He had also been jumping off bridges. That was a way that he wanted to escalate his handcuff tricks because everyone was copying the handcuff stuff. <laughs> and he wasn't even the first one to do that either. But he wanted to have a new slant on it. So he was like, all right. <laughs> I'm going to jump off a bridge. Is this where the phrase comes from? <laughs> what, so Harry Houdini jumps off a bridge? What, you think you can tell? You copycat him? He wasn't kidding. He was the best. <laughs> so, and oh, and yeah, he was fully manacled when he'd do it. Wow. So part of the trick was to plunge into this water off of a high bridge and then come out unmanacled. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. He also did tricks where he was being buried alive which that adds a whole new level of fear and pressure the pressure of the earth right so just completely nuts but by far and away the two tricks that he was most famous for and that are truly considered houdini's tricks are the milk can trick and the chinese water torture cell so let's talk do you know the milk can trick i've seen pictures of it yeah first of all if you haven't seen pictures of it, peeps, and we will be posting them, it is shockingly tiny. <laughs> it is so small. It's like three feet high and two feet wide. Now, so claustrophobic. I get very claustrophobic. I know. I don't like it either. And Harry is not a tall man, as we know. But he sure as shit isn't three feet tall. <laughs> right, he has a rib cage. Like, you know. It's... No, no, no. Yeah, he's not a cat. He's not a hamster. <laughs> Those things can survive quite the trauma, let me tell you. Okay. Yeah. Oh my God. The, st the stories the they tell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, the milk and trick really is the one that makes him just an absolute superstar because it was so daring and it was advertised so ingeniously, where the poster literally said, failure means a drowning death. And so, immediately, people were like, well, I want to fucking see that. <laughs> <laughs> a drowning how much yeah no it's crazy so this is what it is it consists of a large galvanized milk can which is so it's so hard to describe it unless you've seen it so which the photo you see at your vermont country store or at your, right, guess, or your country yeah, casual right? home no one uses a milk can anymore no no but it's a metal thing and it's got a little narrow opening at the top two little handles usually right luke you were doing a great job of describing it i was gonna be like uh, audio visual tour <laughs> I was about to be like, just fucking look it up. I don't have time for this. It's spherical. <laughs> it's metal. And sometimes it has a barn star on it and a picture of a cow. No, that's only the modern ones you get from Christmas tree shop. So 
<laughs> he's just a planter. It's Martha Stewart's great. All right. Okay. Enough. Okay, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> Sorry, it's your show. So the large galvanized milk can, which again, super teeny tiny, three feet high, two feet wide, filled up completely to the top with water. Mm. Next, Harry would be cuffed and then he would step into the milk can and then he would do that little hold your breath for one minute thing with me so I can warm up my lungs while he was submerged up to his neck in the water. Mm. And once he did that little fun one minute with them then he'd be like all right here i go and he'd dunk his head all the way then into the milk can that top lid you were describing so gorgeously is then screwed on it had six locks like big heavy padlocks on all around it to really emphasize the fact that like this this motherfucker's in here ain't nobody getting to this milk That's great showmanship is the locking yeah. and the, and like, you know, a drum, you know, imagine a drum roll and it's just like, you're just on the edge of your seat. And even just the locks alone, it's like, you are wasting valuable time here. This man is in this can. <laughs> Those aren't cheap. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so then the curtain would go around him because he still doesn't want to give away his tricks, right? Can't see everything. No. Can't see everything. Minutes would go by. And people would start to panic. Mm -hmm. People would be screaming like, mercy, mercy, save him, save Houdini. And a stage manager would theatrically come out with an axe, like as if it didn't happen literally every fucking night. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But he'd be there about to like pull back the curtain and let him out. And right as he's about to swing the axe, curtain opens, Houdini emerges, uncuffed, can is still locked. And he is soaking wet. Mm-mm-mm. I love Amazing. it. I Can love you it. imagine being in that audience? Seeing that for the first time. I mean, it's... Uh, You'd lose your shit. It's awesome, you know? And I wouldn't be able to sleep that night. I'd be so goddamn excited. Yeah. And like, we talk about the magic of Hollywood and like we don't really trade in magic acts so much today. But this would have been tr- so transformative and edifying and really exciting. Every, I, I mean, yeah. Thrilling, really Mm -hmm. thrilling. And here's the thing with Harry's tricks. We still don't actually know how he did his stuff. Mm -hmm. With the exception of some of the handcuff stuff and the straight jacket stuff that he himself has explained, the only theories there are that exist on how the milk can trick is done is based on other magicians basically creating their own version of it. So there's that like, do you remember that that series? When was it like the late 90s, early 2000s? The like magic's biggest secrets with like the, <laughs> the what was he? he? He had some stupid name like the mystery magician or who was basically just this asshole giving away all of the secrets <laughs> of magic. <laughs> I mean, magic was really hot in the nineties. It, it came was back. super hot. It, it came did. back hard, and really there is a, and there is this obsession with like, just give me the cheat, give me the hack. What's the, what's the deal? You know, right? Some people say that there must have been some kind of double lid mechanism where it was very easy for him to just pop the lid right off. Yeah, that in the him entering the can, there was so much water in it that it created a gap between where his head would be and the top of the can would be. So his his face never really had to be submerged at all. So he could breathe. So he could breathe the whole time mm-hmm. while, he was, while he was dealing with the handcuffs. I buy that. Yeah. So, I mean, 
you know, these are theories. But the only people who knew were Bess and his brother Theo. He never really told people his tricks. I believe that there's diaries and some of that stuff exists in among private collections, but we'll get into that whole that whole thing later. But what's so funny is that, you know, we have this reaction even now being like that must have just blown people's minds. <sighs> Spiritualists thought, "Oh my god, he is magic." <laughs> <laughs> He's one of us. He's like, this is it. He he possesses magical powers. He and and like I said, he never presented any of these tricks saying that he was anything other than a man escaping from a milk can. Never <laughs> never claimed it. Never claimed supernatural. No, 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 no. I do want to play really quickly this fascinating clip. There was this documentary that I found from Timeline and this guys he goes in to speak to the doctor of david blaine so i'm gonna i'm gonna play this little clip i'm meeting illusionist david blaine's personal doctor to find out how risky houdini's underwater escapes really were so if we take houdini in the milk can once the top goes on there what's happening to his body straight away your body is screaming breathe 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 and you can't because you're underwater what happens if you hold your breath underwater too long and the carbon dioxide goes up you will pass out underwater as you soon as drown. you hold your breath you're producing carbon dioxide within your body that normally you would expel so you're, you're poisoning yourself really is that right yes you're basically making your brain shut itself down now how do you overcome this well willpower you have to put yourself in circumstances more extreme so that you can know you can tolerate those things which are going to be during the event it is highly physically demanding and these people are in unbelievable physical and and more importantly emotional and mental shape so yeah it says everything right there in terms of what this man it doesn't it doesn't even matter if you know how he does the trick this is still dangerous. Extremely, extremely. <laughs> yeah. And nothing is more dangerous than the next trick, which is, of course, the Chinese water torture cell. This is the epitome of the morbid escape. <laughs> so morbid. In large part, what I did not know that I only learned when I started to really get into Houdini, you know, which has been like a crazy, I don't know, 10, 15 year journey for me. It was created because, in large part, because the milk can trick was being copied by everyone. I see. Yeah. Mm. It had become super popular. And not only the milk can trick, there were so many other escape artists and uh, illusionists who were like also stealing his name. There was like... Houdonio, Houdouni, Harvina Duna Duna. <laughs> like it was just like fucking ridiculous because, like the mediums, they were like, ooh, I can make money off of this. Mm. Fuck yeah, I can do that. Let's do that. And so he has this water torture cell built. He called it uh, the upside down. Interesting. Uh, yeah, exactly. He has it built in England and it costs more than $10,000. But as we know, at this point, Boo's making hand over fist. Mm -hmm. But rather than premiering it at a huge spectacle, he did something incredibly ingenious. He wrote it into a play, which meant it had 
then been copyrighted. So it was licensed. So if anyone tried to imitate it, he could sue them. Oh, that's brilliant. So they had yep. to have they had to have the rights to the de- to the device and the trick, so to speak, which they would never get. Yep, which no <laughs> one got. Not not as long as he was alive. No one no one could do the trick. Nope. Isn't that incredible? That is so interesting. Mm-hmm. That's really smart. Oh yeah, and without question, I, I we all know this is his most famous trick. Everybody knows this trick, and it really is a genuinely dangerous one. If the milk can trick, if, if it really is, there was like space there and he could breathe, that's not quite as high risk. This is absolutely insanely dangerous. No mistaking the danger here at all. No, 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 no. It at- premieres in Germany on September 21st, 1912. The initial little play had happened in 1911. The illusion consists of three parts. First, the magician's feet are locked into stocks. Then, while locked in the stocks, he is lifted up, suspended in midair from his ankles with a restraint brace in place. Finally, he is lowered into a glass tank that is overflowing with water. The restraint is locked to the top of the cell and it, it is padlocked. Mm-hmm. So it's, they're, you're using like actual real locks. A curtain is wrapped around. Again, got to have a little mystery. <laughs> and then within minutes, the curtain is open. Houdini appears. He is unharmed with all of the locks still in place. It was astounding. I want to play another recording from this same documentary. This one is really, really fascinating. They are speaking to a magician here who performs the trick, and she's going to describe what she goes through when she does it. I'm meeting Richard Sherry and Dale Crawl, who have spent a lifetime and a marriage captivated by Houdini. Richard has made an exact replica of the water torture cell, and his wife, who is roughly Houdini-sized, performs the act. Is it painful? Yes, it hurts quite a bit. Yeah, it's very painful. So you get your feet locked up, and then once you're raised up vertically, you have the pain of your entire weight pulling down just on your feet. Now, I've been upside down, and I didn't like it at all. (laughs) I found it thoroughly disorienting. It rapidly... Lose the capacity to think. Quite a bit of pressure on your face when you're hanging upside down. Yeah. Houdini probably had the same thing. When you're hanging upside down, it's hard to get that last breath. Then when you go to the bottom of the water tank, you actually have the water pressure pushing on you as well. Is it frightening? Yeah, it is. I've had blood vessels burst in my eyes. If something were to happen, there's so much water above you that you know you're in trouble. There's always the potential that something's going to go wrong. Yeah. So when I first heard her talking about that, because for me, I think about that trick. And the main thing I'm thinking about is like, how do you keep the water from going up your nose? Like (laughs) I'm thinking about like things like that, like basic shit. And then I'm like, and then I'm like, holy shit, your ankles and and the water pressure. And you're wearing clothing and like, like, like barely you're wearing like a bathing suit, but still like, that idea that the pressure of the water is so intense that it could pop the blood vessels in her eyes. Like this is not a game. Like this is really scary. It's very scary, but yeah, I cannot believe people are still doing this trick. Yeah. And they're not necessarily doing it the way that he did it because we don't know how he did it. They're doing their, their version of it. Yeah. I, there's, uh, again, that stupid secret magician show. I remember watching it 
and and I looked it up and his version is like when they close the padlocks on top, the assistants actually pull out like a little linchpin mm. so that the top is not actually locked at all. Mm. But it still does require the magician to pull themselves upward to very easily unhook the ankle restraint and then just pop the thing open. So it's not without danger regardless of how you do it. But the one thing I really want to emphasize for anybody who's never learned about Houdini before, I cannot say this enough. He did not die doing this trick. He did not die doing this trick. He did not die doing this trick. That stupid Tony Curtis movie from the 1950s, which I think a lot of our generation doesn't hold on to this theory, but my parents' generation and other people, they saw that movie and they thought this is how Houdini died. Bad cinematic history. So right? bad. And you it's can't so do manipulative. That. So manipulative. <laughs> no, it's bad. Yeah, I've never seen the Tony Curtis movie. Tony Curtis as Houdini. I'm sure he has created like a Brooklyn accent. <laughs> I always <laughs> thought about that. I was like, God, what does he sound like? How are you? I'm Harry Houdini. Meanwhile, Houdini um, spoke with a Wait, very much... Jim Janet Lee in that one? Isn't the first movie they did yes. together? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. Actually, do you want to hear Houdini talk real quick? I'll just play like a snippet. Oh, I'd love so that. You can hear his I voice. Love a, yeah, I yeah, love yeah, a good yeah. audio. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it's a good audio since it's like a super early <laughs> crappy ass <laughs> gramophone Edison cone <laughs> cylinder. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but um, you know, it's as good as we've got. The Teddy and Roosevelt, the Teddy, the Teddy Roosevelt recordings are awful. They're the worst. This is this you can actually make out what he's saying. I'm not going to play the whole thing because it's like three minutes. But he's also using his stage voice, so it's safe to assume this isn't how he would have talked in everyday parlance. Mm -hmm. But this is it's still a good little clip. get a sense of the showmanship and he loved bets <laughs> he loved all these guys he loved being like i'll give you one hundred dollars one thousand dollars i'm not an expert but i'm wondering if you can detect a little accent there like it sounds you know it's like it sounds very mid-atlantic american like yeah she ha but like it also does sound a little different and he, some of the some of the vowels. It's so hard to know. Yeah. Like what one of my favorite musicals of all time, top top two really, is uh the musical Ragtime. And it actually is part what got me like interested in Houdini because I love just sort of this fictitious portrayal of him. But it made me so annoyed that they portrayed him with this heavy Hungarian accent. And I'm like, that's not Houdini. That's, that's a choice. Yeah. Because he hid 
it. He was deracinated. He did everything he could to dispel his native land, which is what immigrants did to, right. to survive and to pass. But he does also have that in the other recordings we have, that early turn of the century, everybody seemed to talk like this for he, some reason. He sounds exactly like Teddy Roosevelt's recording, to be honest. I yeah. know. Yeah. We stand for the rights of the people. <laughs> we stand. Like, what was going on? But I mean, it also is, it smacks to me of like how newscasters talk. Like, they're like, at elocution. You know. Was it Edison being like, I need you to talk real slow, yeah, yeah. real clear, <laughs> enunciate the fuck out yeah. of everything? Pretend there's a curb at the end of every word. It's like, <laughs> halting but for, speech. But for Houdini, too, you got to think about he's he's used to speaking to the rafters. This yeah. is a he's a showman in a time before microphones. Yeah. So, I mean, dude could project. And yeah, you do have to enunciate. When you're telling people, I will offer $1,000. <laughs> so I thought that was super That cute. is so interesting. And, Isn't it? Yeah. Um, I imagine, it must be, that the no, the origin of the trick comes from the practice of Chinese water torture, which is different than the case trick, right? Yeah, like, you know, the like I said, it wasn't the original name. Mm, that is the name that that it becomes. Okay, I, because it sells really well. But it's he very always, sensational. Yeah, yeah. He always referred to it as as, as the upside down trick. <laughs> I see. So, as a fangirl, I could ramble about this man forever because there is so many, so many more cool things he did. Like he starred in fucking movies doing like crazy feats on film. Mm -hmm. He was as famous as Charlie Chaplin at the time, for sure. <laughs> this crazy motherfucker was one of the first people to like own their own biplane or or biplane or however the hell you say it. The Voisin biplane. He bought it. I think in it's Europe. a biplane. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the biplane. The biplane. The biplane. The biplane in Europe for 5K. And he became the first person to fly an airplane in Australia ever. Okay. Just because right, what cause just because he's like a competitive fucking <laughs> he's a nut. maniac. He's a nut. He's like, you got a hot dog I can eat, you got a big steak, like whatever <laughs> it is, I'll beat it, I'll do it, I'll kill it. He's addicted to it. Record record holder. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He always wanted to do it first and he always wanted to do it best. And the one thing about him that is not so cute is he did enjoy crushing competition. Like he was very quick to, if anybody was doing tricks similarly, he would try to outdo them and publicly shame them. And it's, it's, it's not the nicest aspect of his personality. And the shoe had to fall somewhere here. Sure. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he also like performed in like kids hospitals and apparently in World War One, he assisted American troops at the Hippodrome. Mm -hmm. He counseled doughboys on how to escape sinking ships and extricate themselves from ropes and handcuffs and other restraints if they would ever to be captured by Germans. Shoot that crowd up in the eye, she. <laughs> I will give you $100 for every crouch you kill. This is, how, this is how you survive mustard gas and hold your breath for 10 minutes. Run, um, run real fast. Just run, 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 run. Did he run. have kids? Sadly, the Houdinis could not have children. Because he would have been it a is, rough, rough daddy-o with the competition. Uh, he just wouldn't have been home. Yeah. You know? 
it didn't suit their lifestyle, but that wasn't why uh, Bess was infertile. Mm-hmm. It would uh, so, yeah, that's part of the reason why a lot of, you know, his tricks and stuff, there's no legacy really there beyond him and and then of course his brother too which we'll come to in a minute but <laughs> this, this guy he even had the he had the 1918 flu that he survived wow. he survived everything <laughs> <laughs> he was unstoppable for so long and constantly cheated death until he didn't and we'll come to that in one minute. But before we go to talk about Houdini's tragic death, let's get into the most dangerous part of his career, his attacks on spiritualism and fraudulent mediums. Let's start with this fantastic quote from magician and well-known skeptic, Penn Gillette. Love him. Absolutely. Houdini was the outstanding exponent of the idea that magicians are uniquely qualified to detect fraud and uniquely qualified to be skeptics. And he's right. They know how it all works. They've done it all. They know where the wires are. Absolutely. But here's the funny thing. Harry wasn't your standard skeptic. He wanted to believe in spiritualism. He'd been reading up on it for decades. He saw the merits in it, but he had been, you know, in the Orpheum circuit. He'd seen the phonies forever and he saw the tricks and what they were doing and immediately could be like, oh yeah, they're doing this, 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 and that. It's pretty fucking obvious to me. But he just really had this thing inside of him. And I think part of it was when his mother died that might have ignited that longing for spiritualism to be real, Mm -hmm. you know, but communicating with her, of course, would appeal to him. But his experience from his own psychic days, he didn't exactly have high hopes. And then enters Arthur Conan Doyle, who we mentioned in our previous episode, who was a fervent believer in spiritualism. Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, again, being the author of Sherlock Holmes, which makes this left turn in his life so crazy. <laughs> Gotta love it. And he and he really is also a huge celebrity. Because mm-hmm. remember, authors used to be famous, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Once upon a time. Well, they had a tough time, too, because copyright laws were so tough back then. And mm. often publishers really fleeced these people. Yeah. Um, to be a successful author was difficult. You know, like Dickens yeah. was, was lecturing well into his old age because he just had to make money. Yeah. You know, it's terrible. So I also mentioned, I believe, that he had been part of a a more skeptical side of things, but became a fervent believer after encountering many mediums, having what he believed were true psychic experiences at seances. And what definitely really kicked things into high gear was his son dying of pneumonia during World War I. So the dude was hooked. So how do him... That's not grammar. Him and Harry? Is that grammar? How does he? How do Harry and Arthur meet? (laughs) I'm tired. It's around 1920, everybody. Houdini travels to England. He's fulfilling engagements, which, of course, had actually um, everything had been on hold because of the war. So he hadn't been traveling in Europe for a long time. But he was there and the two men had 
some correspondence expressing their admiration for one another. Harry had actually written some books, so he sent, you know, again, being the insane show-off competitive maniac person that he was, he's like, why don't you read some of my books? I wrote books too. Because <laughs> that was a thing that's really funny with Houdini. The one major insecurity he had was his lack of education. And so he wanted to be taken seriously mm. as someone who was intellectual. It was partially why he wanted to, uh, why he did write books. So mm. anyway, sidebar. So they meet, they like each other. They like talking to each other. A lot of their conversations are basically about spiritualism and they both agree on certain things. Uh, Doyle does believe that there are frauds, but he really believed that there were a lot more legitimate mediums than Harry seemed to think there were. And they had true powers. And he <laughs> believed Harry Houdini had magical powers. Oh, sweet thing. <laughs> he once wrote to him in a letter, my dear, should I do, I'll do an English letter. My dear chap, why go around the world seeking a demonstration of the occult when you are giving one all the time? <laughs> the calls are coming from inside the house, dear boy. You, possess the you power. silly, you silly, tiny man. Hungarian man. Oh, my God. This is the, the level of self-delusion is wild. I know. Wild. And... It says a lot about Harry Houdini being a nice person yeah. and like wanting to wanting to be friends with him and wanting to entertain this and believe it. But when he must have gotten those letters, he must have been like, what the fuck, dude? <laughs> <laughs> but they do become close enough and their families actually become close enough that they holiday together in the summer of 1922 in Atlantic City. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay, there's a TV special waiting to happen. <laughs> At this time, Doyle convinces Houdini to join him for a seance with his wife, Lady Doyle, who, as I mentioned, was a medium automatic writer. Was patient zero for this whole thing. Yeah. Yes. And she had convinced Harry, your mother's trying to speak to me. She, she says she has things to tell you. Please come and sit at the seance. Now, <laughs> this was the dumbest move of all time because the number one thing you could do to piss Harry Houdini off would be to fuck with his mother. You don't fuck with Harry's mama. Mm -hmm. At the same time, though, this perfect trap because it's like my mom, my mama wants me. But fuck, no, this is fake. Is this fake? What do mm -hmm. I do? And Bess even told him, uh, Harry, babe. Lady Doyle has been questioning me nonstop about you and your mom's relationship. Getting all the information ahead of time. She was prime in the pump. Mm -hmm. Yep. And Beth knows this racket. Because yeah. Beth used to do it with Harry. They know all the tells. Absolutely. But Harry says, you know what? Let's just fucking do it. Let's go for it. Oh, God. Oh, so God. They do, so they do the seance. And Lady Doyle begins her automatic writing trance. And she's writing and writing and writing and writing and writing. Houdini actually transcribed everything that she said his mother wrote. And it's immediately clear to him. And it must have been upsetting. But I'm sure he knew in his heart it was totally fucking fake. 
Yeah, he knew where it was going. What were the two biggest tells, Luke? One, she had written the sign of the cross. Mm. They're Jews. Womp. <laughs> Not for a Jewish person. The mm -hmm. other big tell? She wrote it in English. And Cecilia Weiss was a Hungarian Jew who spoke none of the English. Ouch. So another thing, and this really must have sent him over the edge and is partially what leads to everything that happens next with Houdini. During the writing, she, she wrote... Never had a mother such a son. God bless you too, Sir Arthur, for what you are doing for us. A happiness awaits him, meaning Harry, that he was he has never dreamed of. His eyes will soon be open. So Cecilia Weiss is saying thank you to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Yes, you made this possible. And now, because of you, Harry will be a spiritualist. He'll believe because now he's heard from his mommy. It's evil. Talk about culty. It's evil. And whether this was just Lady Doyle that concocted this or if her and Doyle did this together remains unknown. But it's, a, it's an evil, cruel manipulation. Of awful that man and again don't fuck with harry's mom well how many countless others did they pull this on no who knows who the fuck even knows no. so beyond furious and stupidly doyle has already gone to the press and been like well we did it houdini is converted he's a spiritualist he's a believer so you are like, our last hope. <laughs> so Houdini's like, oh yeah, motherfucker, check me out. And in December of 1922, he writes a scathing deposition claiming Lady Doyle, the Doyles in general, leaders of this spiritualist community are total frauds. Wow. So I imagine their relationship did not survive. It tanked. <laughs> It's like water torture tea. So things just get worse and worse between their relationship, obviously, because now he's like, you know what? Now you're all in trouble because all those little spiritualist lectures you all have been doing all across the country. I'm going to do my own little lectures showing exactly how you do all the bullshit you say you do. Amazing. And he did. <laughs> and of course, this further infuriates Doyle and the other spiritualists, and partially because he is myth busting on the people that Doyle specifically has been upholding for years, been saying these are the credible ones, right. these are the real ones. And Harry's like, Oh, yeah, watch this. Rings a little bell under the table, floats a little spirit hand by. Catch me outside, rap, rap. Yeah. He attends so many seances, often in disguises. Have you ever seen him in one of his seance disguises? No. Oh, my God. I can't wait to show this picture to everybody. You guys are going to love it. He just looks like this curmudgeon old guy. He's so good. But it was a good, it was a good uh, costume. He also had a woman named Rose Mackenberg, 
who was his assistant in this, and she herself was his spy. So she would go to them as well, um, and she would have different names and stuff. One was like, her name was like, I think it was Florence Rod, which meant it was <laughs> F Rod. Fraud. Isn't that great? Oh my god, I just or, saw a picture of him. Francis. I just yeah, saw a picture of him in his disguise. Hilarious. He looks like Mr. Ma- look he looks up? like Mr. Magoo. <laughs> so good. <laughs> They'll never see me coming. I'm an old man. <laughs> oh my god. So like during the seances, he would be like, haha, if did you- <laughs> Have you ever watched? It's so good, guys. You've got to watch it. Drunk History does uh, Houdini Doyle thing. Mm. And at that part in the story, it goes, and Houdini would take off his costume and be like, hey, I'm Houdini. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Which I like to imagine that's what happened, but that's probably Who is Houdini happened. in that? It's Ken Marino. Which physically is the wrong type. Correct. He's, he's so funny. He's so um, funny. Alfred Molina is Doyle, Doyle which is great. Yes. Yeah. We love it's, Gravitas. Yeah. Oh, oh my God. Great casting for that one. Watch it after we talk. You're going to die. It's one of my favorite ones, actually. <laughs> so yeah. So all of this is great press for Houdini, bad press for the mediums. And it was so bad that he started receiving death threats mm. through the mail from ghosts ghosts would often threaten him from the from the mm-hmm. deathly uh, doll in the warren's basement sure. yeah letter cursed letters like you you were talking about that doll exactly. that cursed through a letter of shadows yep. <laughs> mm-hmm. yep they were using that one too <laughs> uh in this one doc that that i watched um Pendulette, who said basically spiritualists were like a little mafia mm-hmm. that they it's it was a racket they knew the game yeah so people would do whatever they had to do, and they were not above bribing, sexual favors, or worse, like having, I don't know if they ever went so far as to have anyone killed, but they poisoned people, beat them, threatened their families. You know, it, this was a serious game. Yeah. And Houdini was really putting himself in danger, but his moral outrage and just his, I don't know, his stick to about this, just that superseded any of the fear that he might have had here. But it is probably, of all the things he did, probably one of the most dangerous things, for mm-hmm. sure. And I think it was a little bit his ego, <laughs> because we know by now he always likes to be number one. And if he's the number one guy being like, all you dummies believed this shit, I knew the whole time. (laughs) Plus, and this is really important at this point, this boosted his career quite a bit and helped him because by 1922, he's 48 years old. Mm. He is not a young man anymore. His body is falling apart from mm. just the years of abuse of what he's done. So this is really, this is a a great next chapter for him. Mm-hmm. It's a great way to pivot. And that's another thing that makes him such a great showman. He is the Beatles of escape artists. <laughs> 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 so good. His most famous bust uh, that he's known for was uh, Houdini teams up with Scientific American magazine around, I think it's like 1923, and they're offering this $2,500 prize if you can demonstrate supernatural manifestations. So 
I think the smarter mediums were like, well, I don't want to get caught, so I'm not going to do it. Exposed. Yeah. But there was this one super famous one. This was an Arthur Conan Doyle fave. Her name was Mina Crandon, a.k.a. Marjorie the Medium. She was top tier, super important in Boston upper society. Because again, this is a also like a rich people's game. A lot of people from the highest, highest of upper crust are involved in this shit. And in her seances, shit was wild. Tables weren't levitating. They were fucking flying across the room. Marjorie would wear only a kimono and said, if you'd like to check her body before we begin to make sure she's not hiding anything, you're more than welcome to. Who gonna check me, boo? Mm-hmm. And her main apparition, she she was all about the ectoplasm, of course. But her main <laughs> thing was she would channel her brother, Walter, who would speak through her. And he apparently was a real good time. He was, like, telling dirty jokes, working the room. He was just, like, really fun. But uh, Houdini is like, oh, I'm going to a Marjorie seance. <laughs> she sure as shit isn't getting this prize without me. She's going down. So he attends and he In disguise. is like, no, no, no. Because this was part of that Scientific American magazine. So she knew that legit people were going to be in the room for this, mm. including him. And so he attends his seances and sees her do her thing. So he thinks on it and goes, okay, so I'm going to invent something because our boy loves to invent. I'm going to invent something that I like to call the Marjorie box, which basically is this box where she would sit in and her head would be out and her hands could be out to the side, but her feet were encased mm -hmm. to make sure she couldn't do nothing. <laughs> so, of course, it's seance time. And guess what happens? Nothing. No, spirits aren't interested in coming by tonight. The one thing that does happen is Walter starts getting really angry. He's say, singing songs. He's saying anti-Semitic slurs. Oh, no. And he calls Houdini a son of a bitch. <laughs> he also threatens him and says that he would curse him till the day he died. Go ahead. Curse me. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of like rumors that uh, she tried to seduce Houdini at some point in all of this. And like there's pictures where they look like a little friendly or whatever, but I didn't dive deep enough into the story. But there was this one line that I saw where she apparently tried to win people over with applesauce. And he said, her applesauce means nothing to me. <laughs> and I like to imagine that's a euphemism. <laughs> her applesauce brings no one to the yard. Okay. <laughs> Not happening. Not interested. Oh my god! Oh, this woman. I know. So she is. She is debunked. She's ruined. Good. And he just—he's unstoppable. He goes so far with this that in February of 1926, he testifies before Congress on Bill 8989 which is created to ensure that any person pretending to tell fortunes for reward or compensation would be fined $250 or six months in jail. Wow. He considered this such an epidemic, and to be fair, it kind of was, mm -hmm. that it required legal intervention. And this, honestly, I could do a whole little side episode just on this trial because the fucking testimony is 
wild. It sounds like the Salem witch trials, the way he's being talked to. Mm-hmm. Like, like they're literally like, aren't you yourself magic, sir? And he's <laughs> like, no, what? What's happening? What are you talking about? God, it's so twisted. Well, it sounds like the mediums, again, they've got a lot of powerful people behind them and they probably did quite a bit of bribing. So this failed. And obviously we know that it failed because there's still tons of people making money off of this pursuit to this very day. Right. Yeah. So regardless of the outcome, Houdini simply and matter-of-factly stated that he had performed a public service by exposing fraudulent mediums who preyed on the vulnerable, gullible, and bereaved. And he made it very clear. He's like, I'm not attacking spiritualism as a religion. By all means, go for it. But you have to stop making money off of people's suffering. That's right. And that's what they tried to go after him in court with. They tried to make it about like, oh, you're coming after a religion. How dare you? Like, you know. Right. If people are finding answers here, who are you to say that this is incorrect? You know. Yeah. But we know that it's manipulation. It's exploitation. And he had the cojones to stand up to this really well-organized, well-positioned, affluent, upper-class, you know. Mafia. Late Gilded Age. Right. (laughs) Sort of. Exactly. Organized yeah. religion. Um, oh, yeah. No, we're definitely going to do a side episode because literally people are like screaming at him during his testify. Like it's it's a fucking awesome, awesome little episode in and of itself. So getting back to Harry and his life, he is continuing with his acts, debunking mediums. That's that's now the show he's on the road with. And this brings us to October 19th, 1926 where Harry gives a lecture in Montreal. He's relaxing afterwards and a group of students are chatting with him and Houdini is talking about his world-famous ability to take a punch to the gut. Uh, A student by the name of Gerard Pickleman, which is the best 1920s name I've ever heard. (laughs) Pickleman gives him the one, two, 23 skidoo right in the tummy. He punches him in the stomach. Houdini played it cool and didn't really react. So it's unsure whether or not he initially got hurt because he it's known that he got punched, but it happened twice. So mm-hmm. this is punch one. Another day, Tuesday, more students come back because he loved meeting with people and, and fans. And like these were students of these universities. And so a man named Jay Gordon Whitehead comes in and starts talking with him about his physical strength, his stomach muscles. And without a whole lot of warning, he just kind of starts pounding away at his stomach. The witnesses who were there, they said Houdini definitely wasn't prepared. He was very surprised by it. And it was jarring enough that one of the students told him, knock it off. Right. Like, Like, stop. And this time, Houdini absolutely reacted. He was in horrendous pain because these blows to his stomach ruptured his appendix. It's just a terrible, terrible thing. Uh, the way that appendicitis can <laughs> creep up on you when you don't mm-hmm. know that it that it's there. And, uh, you know, he performed. He went on. He fainted numerous times during his performances, but he did eventually go to the hospital. And ultimately, he would uh, succumb to peritonitis from his ruptured appendix on October 31st, Mm. 1926. So we are on the anniversary of Harry Houdini's death as we speak. How appropriate. Yeah. 
So this man who seemed indestructible was finally no more. And his final words were, I'm tired of fighting. So sad. It's so sad. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's devastating. And such like a, such a pedestrian death for someone who was so death defying, you know, and young. I mean, he was 52. A baby. Yeah. Terrible. Mm. He God, God knows what more he could have done. So, of course, it's just a pure insanity from that point on. People are so bereaved because he's so beloved. You know, obviously his his wife is heartbroken. His family's heartbroken. On November 2nd, 1926, Houdini's body is brought home to New York City because he, he was in Detroit mm -hmm. uh, when he died. And some, oh God, one of the documentaries said it as he was finally placed in a box that he would never escape. And I was like, oh my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can't write itself at that point. <laughs> and in New York City, throngs of crowds came. Upwards of like 2,000 mourners were in attendance mm. at his procession. And he is interred. Oh, Luke, how do you say this? Mach Peleach Cemetery? It's a Jewish cemetery. It's in Glendale, Queens. Oh, is that near Ridgewood? Yeah, I think. Yeah. Uh, I've definitely driven around it. I do not know how to say it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's there. Mach, Mach Pelea. He's in New York. He, he is. He's with other members of his family. But uh, sadly, Bess is not there because her family was Catholic and didn't want her buried in a Jewish cemetery. Isn't that awful? Oh. So they're not together. You know, I feel like if they had had kids, that's something that would have yeah. gotten fixed. Is, his, is his monument like notable looking or is it kind of, you kind of wouldn't recognize it? Yeah, that's a cool side story too. Um, in Jewish tradition, it's not supposed to be like overly Grand. ornate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's something that was fought for over the decades. So there's like a very nice tasteful, uh, understated. Set, mm -hmm. Yeah. Set there for him. Um, uh, a bust, I think is uh, still there. Uh, a bust. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, there there was one that I know got like totally messed up and destroyed. I I thought that they replaced it. Honestly, I, I'm not sure. I've not I've never done the pilgrimage, which I need to. Right? Isn't that, that ridiculous? That sounds like a fun trip for us. Absolutely, let's do it. Let's go. Let's go visit my my boo. So also important to note here is a lot of people said this is horseshit. There's no way he died from a punch to the stomach. Right. It doesn't justify, it doesn't, doesn't match the man. So ever since then, there have been endless conspiracy theories that it was actually a murder committed by the spiritualists. <laughs> Poisons. But like no one dies from a punch to the tummy. Yeah. Right? That's was, not a thing. It was Brother Walter who came through the train. Right. Scene. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Walter did it. Like... There's so, so many things. And and things had gotten so bad at the time. Like Houdini was even carrying a gun around. So like no one could just like fucking sneak up on him and get him or something. So, I mean, it's kind of been proven time and time again and firmly believed by most credible Houdini historians that he died of appendicitis. <laughs> yeah. Even though he's a rational guy in terms of his, you know, saying who he's an illusionist and he doesn't believe in irrational spiritualism or, you know, huckster practices, he is a very mythic and legendary figure because he does all this death defying stuff. And so, of course. Yes. And very murderable for what mm -hmm. he was doing yeah. to the spirits. To, I can understand why yeah. it's an attractive. Yeah. 
conspiracy theory. Yeah, but it's the not. demise does not meet the grandeur of his life. And that's a really no. interesting thing we do as people, trying to set a death story that fits the life. Yes. So the final chapter, because this is, despite the fact that he's dead, it's not the end. At some point in their marriage, Harry and Bess had a discussion that if spiritualism was real and they had the ability to come back and contact that they would have a special code word and they would come to each other in a seance. So on October 31st for, I think it was 10 years, Bess held a seance for Harry. And after 10 years, she was like, <laughs> I believe this is the direct quote, 10 years is long enough to wait for any man. Oh. And, and she stopped doing it. But other societies took over. Yes. And endless entities across probably the world do seances for Harry on October 31st every year. So, hey, y'all, if you're interested, I did happen to come across one. Dorothy Dietrich and Dick Brooks will be holding their original Houdini seance. Uh, and that is in the Houdini Museum in Scranton. That's one of the very few museums that are completely devoted to Harry Houdini. Good old Scranton. It will be live on Zoom. So you can you can Zoom your seance for Harry. And it starts at uh, 12.30 p.m. So I don't know if you have the time. Maybe they'll also record it. So maybe you can, you can tune in and watch. Um, and the event is totally free. Anyone can watch. Their website is Houdini.org. So if you're looking for a, a little spooky fun time, involve Harry. That's a very fun way to do it. But otherwise, we have not heard from Harry. <laughs> no one has heard from Harry. <laughs> he gone. But not forgotten because holy shit, is there a lot of museum stuff on Harry Houdini. Like, I'm going to try to get through this as quick as I can because this could be like six pages worth of stuff. What is frustrating, though, Theodore Hardeen, his brother, he took on all of his props. And he did the milk can and he did the water torture and he did all that stuff. But he then sold them to another magician and a collector by the name of Sidney H. Radner. Mm. And a lot of that collection could be seen at the Houdini Museum in Appleton, Wisconsin, until Radner auctioned it all off in 2004. Most of the best pieces, including the water torture cell and original milk can, now belong to motherfucking David Copperfield. I heard about that. Yeah. He's got all the Houdini alia. He got all of the stuff. It's just such a bummer. This sounds like the most incredible museum in the world. He has called it the International Museum and Library of the Conjuring Arts in Las Vegas. And no one is allowed inside. Hmm. And likely no one ever will be allowed inside. So it's just his private gallery to himself. Yeah. Which on the surface is like, you're a fucking weird, selfish man. But his reasoning is there's too many secrets in the room. And David Copperfield is of that old school magical guild that mm -hmm. feels like, this shit is important. It's sacred. We have sworn oaths and we are not going to fuck with that. Right. So 
he won't let people in because he doesn't want them to know. Mm-hmm. But to me, it's like, dude, you are so rich. Why don't you just organize this? Get a fucking curator to organize this in a way where like nothing's going to be given up. You know, right. like you could put a black scrim around something or I wouldn't be I mean, I'm not smart. I wouldn't be able to look at the case and be like, oh, yeah, I can see all the pulleys and maneuvers and, and clips. And you know what I mean? To look at the original Chinese water torture cell, I'm not going to learn dick. No. Because <laughs> it's just going to look like the same one that they use now. It's just that it's the amazing original invention of this genius man. And I don't get to ever see that in person because of David Copperfield. <laughs> right. Doesn't that suck? It sucks. Sucks. But- like David Copperfield, there are tons of hardcore Houdini enthusiasts. You can often find things on eBay, random little things, lots of handcuffs, stuff like that. In 2011, one of his straight jackets sold at a Christie's auction in London for $46,980. That's amazing. So there are fans, big fans. Uh, me personally, I have seen of like the really cool stuff. I've seen tons of his handcuffs in person, but I have seen a milk can in person and one of the straight jackets, which is really, really cool to see in person. Does the Houdini Museum in Scranton have a lot of a lot of this kind of stuff? Do they have some some show pieces? That's the thing is like there's so many different little museums like that, and none of them have a definitive collection. A lot of them have straight jackets. A lot of them have cuffs. A lot of them have all these other little weird tricks and photos, cool like posters. Um, yeah, letters and mm-hmm. things like that. So, yes, you will always have a great time if you go to a Houdini exhibit, no matter what. I went to one in Baltimore years ago. That was great. Um, and that was at a Jewish museum there. So, look out for Jewish museums. They frequently do treatments on Harry. Because mm-hmm. he's he's like a favorite son. <laughs> sure, sure. Right now, in this moment, my number one recommendation, if you are in Anaheim, California, or within proximity to that area, Museo, Museum and Cultural Center has a fall exhibition called Houdini Unchained, where they will be showing items from a private collection that have previously been unseen. So... That sounds fucking cool. If anybody wants to buy me a ticket to Anaheim, (laughs) that would be great. But yeah, there's always exhibits on him all the time. So, you know, just just keep your eyes open, ears open. There's phenomenal websites. My number one source from this was this incredible researcher. His name is John Cox and his website is called wildabouthoudini.com. Like wild about Harry. Isn't that cute? (laughs) And it is so insanely detailed. That's a great source if Mm. you're just looking to learn a little bit more. There used to be a Houdini museum in New York, but that Mm. sadly is no longer moved back to being a private collection, which is just becoming my least favorite word. (laughs) I feel like we say it all the time on this show. It's appointment only. He does it for special groups. Um, But he apparently has a great collection. Another place to visit, not Houdini specific, but still has great Houdini stuff, is the American Museum of Magic. And that's located in Marshall, Michigan. 
I think they actually even have a milk can, which is pretty cool. And then there's New York itself, if you're a New Yorker, and all over the world. He was everywhere. There is a Houdini Museum in Budapest. That's great. Isn't that cool? It's wonderful. Like, he's everywhere. He really is. He's in Queens. He he lived in a house on 21st Street near Prospect Park for a period of time. So he's cool. from my neck of the woods. Like Harry's everywhere, man. He's everywhere. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So an incredible legacy, an incredible man, and an unbelievable entertainer. We are so, so lucky that he graced this earth for the time that he did. And we live in the world today where the inherents of the entertainment world that he helped to create. When we were coming up, you know, in like the nineties, like magic was really hot. And Harry Houdini Harry Houdini was 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 really part of that. And I don't know what the imaginary is like with with magic today and young people, young people. Um <laughs> because we live in such a Overly ordered and rational, and to a the pendulum has swung in another direction, right? Everything can be faked. Deep fakes are a thing now, where you correct someone's face. Harry Houdini, it it just makes someone like him that much more of a fucking genius comparatively. Yeah, and he was also a on the side of the real. Is I guess what I'm trying to get mm-hmm. to. And, you know, what you're saying yeah. is that the real reality is under assault. For as much as we're you know dialed into everything and we see the strings, we don't believe in magic so much. Maybe our imagination is dulled by technology. Our imagination is also ratcheted up by technology, and that we believe everything is a freaking conspiracy. Um, I know. And what an amazing legacy to have left behind. And complicated figure. And uh, thank you so much for that amazing retrospective that was a really big topic um really yes. difficult to parse through <laughs> but i really liked how you gave us his meteoric rise you know dissecting his illusions are so important they're so crucial to understanding who he was mm-hmm. and, and understanding what it was like to see him because again with all the evidence we have there's also a lot we don't have and so we have to use our imagination to kind yeah. of fill the gaps in terms of what it was like to see and him. he even like even in his own diaries he built himself up a bit <laughs> so harry isn't always the most reliable source on harry <laughs> not a reliable narrator yeah no, he's a he, his he wants to sell the myth. Yeah. And he's yeah. coming off the 19th century which was the century of myth makers. Oh you yeah. Know, from Temple to Peter Barnum to all these guys. Yeah. Um it was all self-invention, self-improvement and, you know, I'm selling myself as the ex-king of whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, what an American tradition to he just stepped into that. I know? know it gives me oh, it's just the the turn of the century is actually my favorite time period because there was so much potential Mm -hmm. you know and especially as someone whose background is in you know theater and performance at this time period uh it's it's part of my obsession with him is because it's an awakening it like i said anything is possible and harry houdini proved that anything is possible so that's that Fantastic job. <laughs> um, so you. that's a wrap for our October spooky season uh, for the Morgan oh, Museum. Bye, spookies. <laughs> <laughs> and so, Katie, I want to talk a few, spend a few minutes as we uh, discussed. Let's talk about where we're taking our listeners over the next few weeks. Yes, we've been taking um, some time to reflect. And Luke, correct me if I am wrong. Is this not our 20th episode? This is the 20th episode. So, kiddos. 
you've been with us on quite the journey. 20 episodes in, we have learned so much. We are learning how to do this better. <laughs> but we have also learned that we could be working smarter <laughs> and and harder, but like in a different way. So we've decided to shift our format just a little bit. So uh, Luke, why don't you elucidate on that a touch? Starting sure. With our, so with our what we are proposing, <laughs> whether you like it or not, <laughs> is- You don't we, get a vote. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to present the Morbid Museum podcast in what will be more of like thematic cycles. Yes. So you can think of it as a season or as a burst of episodes, whatever uh, synonym works for you. Basically, we're going to craft a handful episodes at a time and release them in a sequence. And so this series will have a sort of overarching theme or a thrust or a common idea linking these episodes together. We're going to have long form episodes. We're going to have shorter episodes that are more maybe fun, whimsical dives because these topics can be sometimes very difficult and difficult to make fun of. And we'll also have <laughs> special guests really aggressively recruited. So we'll and have- we are so excited about the yeah, we have so we'll have a too. lot of other voices entering the calls. Get ready for that. It's going to be really exciting. So yeah. we should be back in a few weeks. We'll have another episode coming out stronger, better than ever in our two in our 3.0 version. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is something that we have labored over because we have worked so diligently and it's, we say it's hard work, but it's fun. And, it is, um, but we don't want to burn out on you guys. We want to keep this going forever <laughs> or as long as humanly possible. We want to do it as best as we can. That's right. So, you know, yeah. and we, we started because we had to start and we wanted to start yeah. and we said, Hey, we're going to start and see where it goes. And we've been so thrilled with the connective tissues and all the references to old episodes and culture we've built and the community we've built. We cannot say how grateful we are to everybody for their likes and their comments and their subscriptions in foreign countries that make us giggle and think about so people, people listening to us in other countries. Thank you for that. <laughs> it's just been such a delight and mm. there's so much more to come. But to do that, we just have to think a little more strategically about how we use our time. We're still yes. a two-person operation. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Volunteers so, accepted. <laughs> so we apologize for all of the mistakes. Volunteers accepted. Donations accepted. <laughs> yes. And in that regard, with this new model, we are finally getting our shit together and getting Patreon going. So that's another motive for us to work more in these little chunks is we can create more special content for people who are interested in becoming true ride or die more buddy <laughs> more buddy platinum status yes exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah i think that about says it all Okay. Thank you so much for listening, folks, to this episode of the Morbid Museum Podcast. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the Morbid Museum Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And please leave us a review on Apple and other podcast platforms. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok at the Morbid Museum. And send us your suggestions or questions to themorbidmuseum at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. You can be a more, more buddy pen pal. Yay! Until next time, we'll see you for another gallery talk inside the Morbid Museum podcast. Bye. Bye-bye.